Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 738th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is changing the face of food in Phoenix. We're talking with returning guest Edmund Williams about the Phoenix Backyard Garden Program. Ed is a civil engineer and urban agriculture innovator. He has developed a new method of gardening called the Lear Garden, that's L-E-H-R Garden, a garden system that combines 12 different methods and practices of gardening, soil creation, ecosystem repair into one cohesive system that is designed to meet the unique challenges of urban agriculture. Between water struggles and the decline of urban farmland, Phoenix has an urgent need to develop a resilient food system. Like in most cities, a massive, largely unused land resource in the form of large backyards is available. As one part of the solution of food insecurity and resilience, the city of Phoenix is reviving the concept of victory gardens. Just as everything else has changed since the 1940s, gardening and farming have changed dramatically. Phoenix is testing building gardens in backyards and Lear Innovations is one of their partners. Ed is not just trying to figure out how to get people gardening, but keep them gardening through the power of living regenerative soil. Ed, we got to meet you in podcast episode 453 back in June of 2019. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Yes, I am. Excellent. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you since we last chatted? Thanks, Greg. Yeah, it has been a very interesting ride. As I'm sure you're well aware, Phoenix has kind of hit a point where they realized that food system here is not very resilient. I think the pandemic really showed that. And on top of that, we import about $10 billion worth of food a year here. On top of that, we've got water issues. Lake Mead has dropped to a point where we're actually losing a portion of our allocation from Lake Mead. So from what I've heard, we're losing 21% of the water that we get annually from Lake Mead which is kind of a big deal. Thank <laughs> Yeah. Now, I will say that the water from Lake Mead, the CAP water, the Central Arizona Project water, is only about 30% of our water that we use here. So it's really only about a overall, like about a 6% 
loss of water, but that's still pretty big. And that water is going to hit farmers first. Yeah. And they're going to start shutting off. Most of our farms here are flood irrigated and they're going to start shutting off the flood irrigation or at least reducing it. And pretty much any reduction is going to be really hard hit for farmers. And then we look at our urban farms and our urban farms are going out of business rapidly. Phoenix is still growing fast and the developers are snatching up the farmland. So the city, one of their long, longer term goals has created the office of the food systems program. And their goal is to really try and expand agriculture here in Phoenix and create kind of a food system, which is really, they're starting off behind the eight ball as, as everything's already kind of declining and they're trying to figure out how to make it grow. So the they've got several different programs that they're doing there. They've got grants, they've got a whole bunch of different things. But one of the big things that we're working with them on is called the Phoenix Backyard Garden Program. And what happened was they reached out to us a couple of years ago. We've been talking with the city about some of these types of ideas and how to change urban agriculture a couple of years now. And they've taken the ideas that we've given them and the other people have given them in their own ideas and combined them all into this program. And one of the things that they're using as an inspiration is the Victory Gardens. So as I'm sure most of your readers know, Victory Gardens were formed during World War II, where a lot of our farmers were off to war. And so they encouraged people to grow their own food in their own space. And we produced, I think it's something like 40% of the food that we, that Americans ate right there in their own backyards. And the idea is here we are 80 years later, agriculture has changed significantly in 80 years. And how can we change backyard gardens because you know just a an in-ground till the ground and put your food in garden doesn't actually work great in Arizona it's the people who are really passionate about it and really dedicated can do that and do it well but it still uses a lot of water and so they're trying to look at different options and we've actually there's actually three of us partners that are working with them to build backyard gardens and where we're at right now is we've installed the first 26 from the first round and we're actually just launching into the second round we're going to be building more gardens and more backyards over the next couple of months nice and who are the other so there's lear innovations we're going to talk about mm -hmm. what a lear garden is here in a minute yep who are the other two partners tiger mountain foundation and nxt aquaponics awesome that's uh, darren chapman and dr george brooks both of which who've been on the show yep so awesome and so let's just review. So if, for anybody that's interested, you can go back to the previous episode and learn all about Lear Gardens. But give me a three minutes on what a Lear Garden is, what the acronym means, and what's the point. I get a whole three minutes. Wow. So the acronym, <laughs> right? I've refined my elevator speech, but the acronym is linking ecosystem and hardware for regeneration. And basically what a Lear Garden is designed to be is something that is, so a lot of people have realized that our, uh, the way we do agriculture, industrial agriculture doesn't work and come up with different solutions. And most of them either go towards the technology and away from nature or towards nature and away from technology. Lear Garden uses both to a very high level. So as we try and automate systems and make it easier, we're actually in some cases for the watering flow, we're using timers and pumps. And for the fertilizer and the soil chemistry, we're actually using the biological processes to do that. 
so that's basically the what a Lear Garden is designed to be is really a good system, a resilient, easy to use system for urban agriculture. I mean, it works in rural areas, but it's really kind of designed to meet the needs of urban agriculture. Nice. And paint a picture for me of what a Lear Garden would look like if I was looking at it and how it works. Right now we're building them out of wood. We're actually starting to work on a manufactured system, but basically what it is, it's a raised bed garden. It's actually, the, there's a, about a foot or two of space underneath the garden bed. So right now, like I said, we're building it out of wood. So we do a framed up box and there's soil in the box. There's a drain at one end. There's a compost bin at the other end, and there's a tank that, that sits underneath the garden. So the tank allows you to be really water efficient because what happens is when the timer turns on, the pump pumps the water out of the tank, pumps it up into the compost bin, where the compost bin, if there's any fish poop or debris, something like that, the, the pump will suck it up. It drops it into the compost bin where it becomes part of the soil. So the compost bin is for spent plants or food waste. It's really a breeding ground for black soldier fly larvae and earthworms. You don't have to turn it at all, and it still composts faster than a hot composter, a tumble composter. Right. Then the water picks up whatever nutrients have been released by the composting process, basically turning them into a wheat compost tea, like constantly and always. The water flows through the soil. The soil is made up of mostly wood chips is what we start with, probably about 80% wood chips with a couple of amendments to just kind of round things out a little bit. Hold on. Uh, yes. Hold on. You said the soil is made up of wood chips. So, so I'll put soil in air quotes. Right, exactly. So it's not really <laughs> soil. You're starting off with wood chips. I don't want to pass this up because this is magical. Yes. I had a conversation one time with somebody online who absolutely was insistent that a Lear Garden is a form of aquaponics because we borrow a lot of the structural aspects from the way aquaponics does things. Not mm -hmm. a raft system, but the flood and drain aquaponics system. Right. But uh one of the things that she said was, hey, it's you can do aquaponics with soil. It's still aquaponics. I said, can you do aquaponics without fish? She goes, well, no, you can't. <laughs> I said, well, I, most of my customers don't want fish. We put a couple of guppies in there, mosquito fish, to eat mosquitoes or goldfish or whatever. But most mm -hmm. people don't want to mess with tilapia. And we certainly don't put them at anywhere at the volume. A, a Lear Garden at its core is a composting system. So what we're doing is we're taking those wood chips and we're breaking them down in place while the plants grow in them. And they actually turn into soil really rapidly. What I was going to say, that was a problem that you had in the first few renditions of the system, wasn't it? Where it turned these wood chips into compost and then you had to harvest the soil, right? Yes. Yeah. And that was actually, that's one of my, one of my things that I put simultaneously in greatest success and greatest failure category uh -huh. is it took me entirely too long to figure out that I tried a whole bunch of different things to figure out. Cause what happens is as the, those wood chips break down into soil, which happens in about a year, you can actually harvest the soil after six months, but you get a really, really rich, beautiful harvest after a year. And what happens is the particle size gets smaller and smaller. The water flows through there. The soil, which still has a ton of, it's almost all organic matter starts to go anaerobic and then the plants suffer because of it. Um, and what we ended up doing was, like I said, it took me about seven or eight years to really figure out that the soil needed to come out. 
Once we figured out that we could, we needed to harvest the soil, we started looking into the soil and getting some testing done and realized that it's just absolutely superior, basically worm castings. And so we've been selling the earthworm castings and it turns out that the soil production is far and away the most profitable aspect of <laughs> running a layer garden. Nice. So a typical garden, like we're putting in for the backyard garden program, well, you can harvest about 40 gallons worth of soil. I typically sell them right now for about 10 bucks a gallon, give or take. And that's just $400 every time we harvest it. But wow. the cool part about that is the business model. So we want to keep people gardening in perpetuity. So what happens then is when the soil is ready to be harvested, come in for free. And we will come in, take the soil out, replace the soil, build it up to what we need to, or tune up the whole system, fix anything that's broken, replant the garden for them, get it all set up, and they're good to go, and wow. we get paid in soil. <laughs> I love it. And we then take that soil, and we sift it, and we package it, and we do our, our work with it, and then we sell the soil. Awesome. So I love the idea of Illyre Garden. And how does that help backyard gardeners in the city of Phoenix? So one of the issues with coming out with widespread urban gardening is that it's a lot of work. There's a lot that you have to know. And so we've got a lot of people who are really passionate and they're going to dig in and learn and study and experiment and spend lots of money. But then that's only going to be what, maybe 5% of your population. If we want to really see the benefits of urban agriculture, we need to find a way to, to democratize it a little bit, bring it more to the masses in a way that's going to be a little bit easier. And that's what a Lear Garden is designed to do. It makes backyard garden easy. One of the things that we're doing as part of the program is we're training people in how to use a Lear Garden. And uh, one of the things that my people are telling me is that it's so easy. They've Honestly, one of the problems we're running into seems to be more of a problem in community gardens, but we kind of run into it with the backyard gardeners too, is it's so easy. They forget to harvest. They just forget don't have to go to... out there. All they right. just forget, forget to harvest. So they'll realize they don't have to go out there for a week and the thing's just going to run itself, which I think is a good problem to have. It's, it's not the worst problem in the world, but anyway, so what happens is you make it easy for the backyard gardener. And then all of a sudden, it's, you start to make the whole process of urban farming easier. One of the directions that the city is trying to go with this, we've had a couple of discussions where they're looking about saying, okay, we've got backyard gardens. What about backyard farms? What's it going to take to increase the investment and have people, instead of one garden bed, have three, five, ten, whatever they can fit in their space, whatever we can find the funding for? So what is the difference between a backyard garden and a backyard farm? I'm going to parrot this guy. I'm trying to remember his name. I think it was Greg Peterson, <laughs> where a backyard farm is where you sell the food. Mm. You're feeding people other than just your family. Did I get that right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> where, and the idea there is that you're producing more food than you can eat. I always tell people, you, unless you're on a very specialized, restricted diet, you're not likely to produce all of the food that you're going to eat, but you can produce a, more than you can eat. But it's, if, you're, if you like cheese, you're probably not going to have a cow in suburbia. Um, it's just not going to be worth the effort. Um, right. Likewise with beef, 
Likewise with baking soda. I haven't figured out how to grow baking soda yet. Um, but you can grow so many vegetables that you're looking for a place to to put them. And one of the things that I wanted to wanted to kind of talk about a little bit is really trying to create this into a system of urban agriculture, urban farming. And I would say I'm going to state a little bit of a controversial opinion here, Greg. Uh, I think that urban agriculture is actually rare because one of the things that that is absolutely critical in all forms of agriculture is context. What is the context of your agriculture? So let's say, for example, that you're a dairy farmer that's been farming, been running a dairy in northern Wisconsin for 100 years, and you know exactly how to run a dairy, everything there is to know about a dairy, and you decide that you're tired of the winters and you're going to move to Yuma, Arizona and open up a dairy, what are the chances that you're going to struggle? <laughs> right? <laughs> the context is completely different, but environmental isn't the only context. You have a whole lot of other contexts that are related to farming, and urban farming is a completely different context. I was talking to an urban farmer here a couple of months ago, and I stated that opinion, and he got he bristled at me. And I said, let me ask you something. If you take your operation that you're doing right here and somehow manage to pick it up and transport it 30 miles outside of town, how does that change the way that you're doing it other than the amount of time that you're driving to get to it? So, well, not at all. So then you're performing rural agriculture in an urban area. If it doesn't change how you run it, it's different. It's rural agriculture. If you've got one guy who's there and he's farming it and he's tilling it, he's marketing it and he's selling it, that's the rural model. That's and, brilliant. And that's a brilliant shift in how we think about this. Now, the question then becomes, what does urban agriculture look like? I would say in a lot of cases, it's the, it's the neighbor who grows zucchini and is leaving it on your doorstep. We <laughs> just need to find her problem. a market. The zucchini problem. We need to find her a market for that zucchini so that she doesn't have to sneak it into people's backseats of their cars when they aren't looking. The things that we have different here, land is the easy one to explain is we don't have huge plots of a hundred acres in the middle of cities. Even five acres is hard to come by because you can build development there of some sort. What we do have is lots of big backyards, certainly here in Phoenix. And I think in a lot of America, we have big backyards where you have a thousand, sometimes 2000 square feet where you can dedicate to growing food. And then you have people. People is another aspect. If you're out in a rural area, anything you want to do, you get to be the guy doing it. But we can create a community around urban farming where you've got one person who's growing seed starts and another person who's growing mushrooms and another person who's taking those spent mushroom blocks and creating soil out of them and another person who's going out and maintaining gardens and doing landscaping and another person who's doing permaculture design. And there's just and then, of course, one of the big parts is you can take the onus of marketing off of the backyard farmers. You've got a market where people can bring their produce and then it gets either sold in the market, distributed out to other people or whatever. So you, if you can build a community around backyard farming and create just a complete support network, that pairs really well with the low effort aspects of a Lear Garden. You can continue to run, most households have two incomes, you can continue to work both of those jobs because you're looking at maybe spending five to 10 hours a week harvesting and packaging your food. Awesome. And Lear Innovations then isn't a Lear Garden builder. Correct. 
primarily. That is what we're doing, but yeah, it, we're we're trying to change the face of urban agriculture. Wow, I've said for years that the place to fix our broken food system is in urban areas. Capital T, the place. Yeah. And this, you're really tackling a lot of the social pieces with your concepts, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because the low hanging fruit, the easy place to start this, if we can find the funding and this, the city is absolutely working with us on that is in food deserts. Because if you take us, go to a food desert, certainly in Phoenix, I don't know how I can't speak for other cities, but you find a food desert. There's a, you can find maps out there you just, mm -hmm. and you just pick one at random and you zoom in on that neighborhood that's in a food desert and you look at their backyards. They have the same big backyards that everybody else has. There's no swimming pools. There's not a lot of landscaping in most of them. They've it's got dirt. It's bare dirt and a broken swing set. And so it's it becomes an unused resource in the form of land and land is our most valuable resource. And this is a resource that is utterly untouchable by the developers. You can't take over somebody's backyard and build another house there. Right. It's not going to work. So it's something where the person who lives in that house has control over it. Even if they're a renter, they have a certain level of control over that land. You said something earlier about democratizing the food system. That's what you just explained, right? Yes, exactly. Wow. Wow. So let's kind of review again what that looks like now that we've, you called it what it was. I just called it what it was. Review it again. Okay. Basically what we're looking to do is to create a system of urban agriculture where you have thousands of people, tens of thousands, maybe even reaching millions someday who are all producing more food than they can eat right there in their own backyard. And that food is theirs. That's one of the things I want to jump on. That food is theirs. And if they want to eat it, that's fine. And if they want to feed the widow next door, that's fine. It's their food. If they want to sell it to a market and create an additional income for their family, then I ran some calculations. I had a urban farm at my last house that was about 900 square feet. I ran my urban farm on a very stringent regimen that I refer to as benign neglect. So I went in one time, there's a, a local group here called the Community Exchange Table, where you can bring your excess produce and they'll sell it for you. And I knew about them for probably a year or so before I got around to finding their paperwork and getting myself in the system. And I showed up on the first day and got myself in the system and First of all, I surprised them because I showed up with chard and beets and they're like, it's July. Chard and beets don't grow in July. I'm like, well, if you'd like to come see my garden, I can pick you more tomorrow because they do grow in a Lear garden in July. But I got $35 off of my sales that day, which isn't bad for an hour's worth of work. Right. And then I went, I got to thinking about it and I went out and I measured the areas that I had harvested. It was $35 off of 6% of my garden. There was only 6% of my garden that was being productive. Now imagine if 60% of my garden was being productive at that point. I could make, instead of $35, $350, okay? And that was only one week. So let's say you only do that three weeks out of the month. That's $1,000 a month. Now, can yep. you imagine a family living in a food desert having an additional thousand dollars a month and all they got to do is a handful of hours worth of work to kind of pull everything together especially once they get good at it pull everything together and sell it 
and take it down to the market where the market can buy it from them. So it's something that you inject that level of money into a food system and it into an economy. If you take people who are barely scraping by and all of a sudden they have disposable income, that's economic growth. Right. Well, about 22, 23 years ago, when I was going to college at Arizona State University, I was harvesting my front and backyard once a week and going to the market. And I'd make two, $300 a week Yeah, for maybe 10 hours worth of work. Yeah. And 30 bucks know, an hour. That's not bad. That's not bad. And when it's not like food has gotten any more expensive in the last <laughs> couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was at the grocery store yesterday and eggs were $4 a dozen to $9 a dozen, depending on which kind you got. That's just crazy. Yeah. And when I think one of the other things, obviously we're trying to refine the system, but the issue that we're really trying to work out, it becomes a psychology, sociology problem. How do we talk people into, how do we convince people to do, uh, create their own backyard farm? And it's something that you would want to, you have to make it easy for them. You have to somehow bridge the knowledge gap. So, so they don't have to know how to create soil. I'm going to come in and I'm going to create it for you. And you don't have to know the theory behind creating soil. If you want, I can show you how to do it. You add this and then this. And so it's something that kind of democratizes it. But then one of the pieces, then if you want to move from a backyard garden, that's easy for somebody and they're going to want to do it to a backyard farm. One of the things that you're going to want to do is try and figure out how to make it maximally productive. How can you make it profitable? And that's where the that E in Lear comes from, the ecosystem. The things that we've done, like you mentioned in the intro, we combined 12 different concepts, soil building, gardening, all of these different practices into a Lear garden. For example, aquaponics combines two. It's got the growing of plants like hydroponics, and then it puts fish in the mixture. And people love that. You take two concepts and you combine them. We're doing 12. And that, yeah, it took me a lot of work to get it down to 12. <laughs> right. When in permacultures, I'm a fan of permaculture. I've been studying yeah. it and teaching it for 30 years. We have something called stacking functions. Yeah. And stacking functions is about making one asset do many things for you. And so you Absolutely. have this, right? So you have this Lear garden. It grows food. It grows soil. It help me here. What else does it do? Because I know right, so let, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to expand food a little bit. Okay. So it depends a little bit on the level of your effort that you want to do and the level of your support network. So it can, it grows vegetables. We're going to start with that. That's pretty easy. And obviously fruit, we'll kind of, we can lump those two together. Yep. It has a water tank. If you want, you can put fish in there um, and you can grow fish and you can make that water tank as big or as small as you want. So then you've got mushrooms. Okay. So if you think about it, Mushrooms are going to, those wood chips are going to break down through fungal action. If you don't put any mushrooms in there, you'll just get wild mushrooms. But if you put, if you actually can compare the mushrooms with the wood chips in Phoenix, we're limited. We can only grow them, grow them over the winter. I grew, a, it worked out to be a, just over one pound of mushrooms per square foot. In your Lear garden? In my Lear garden. Wow. 
Um, and it's they just do really well. Not only do they do well, but they also break down the wood very effectively, turn it into something that your earthworms very much enjoy eating. They go nuts over that. And so then you have another output, you have earthworms. If the earthworms tend to congregate towards the compost bin all throughout the soil there, working on breaking down the wood chips, but they really particularly love the food waste that you put in the compost bin. So you can harvest earthworms and sell earthworms. And those go for something like $40 a pound. It's or $80 a pound. I think last time I looked it up, I think it was $40 for a half a pound. Yeah. All right. So these are essentially raised beds. Correct. And you've put wire around the base of them and you're growing something underneath. Yeah. So I had in my last house, I had chickens and I'm currently moving into quail, trying to work with quail and, and have them under there. And so of course, naturally the soil is another output. So the idea then is you can stack all of these different outputs. I was looking into composting. If you have a pretty sizable Lear garden, it, it chews through a lot of compost and Mm. some restaurants actually pay organizations to take their compost out and and compost it. So you could be running a composting operation. You can grow black soldier fly larvae in there and sell those or just feed them to your poultry. All depends on what level of engagement that you want. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is as we start looking into expanding from a backyard garden to backyard farming, the question is what level of productivity can we expect? And towards that end, the city has given us a grant through their Agri-Food Tech Innovation Grant. There's actually two things that we're doing with it. The first is that we're using the money to build an urban farm. We've got a little space in Levine that's on a dairy farm. They've allocated us. It's just under a quarter of an acre. And we're going to build 12 12 Lear beds that are going to be four feet wide and 24 feet long. And we're putting, we're currently working on putting quail underneath some of them. The garden system is really easy to set it up to automatically water the quail so that we don't have to worry about getting out there and watering them. Then we just give them big food hoppers and we don't have to go out every day. But then we've also got the vegetables that we're going to be producing. And I've been working with a couple of different mushroom growers to get spent mushroom blocks and we'll be in incorporating those and probably producing some mushrooms off of that. We'll see. I'm a little late in the season right now for really planting mushrooms, but come next year, we should be getting pretty close. And then when we do a soil harvest on the full system, once we get it all built, calculate somewhere in the neighborhood of $16,000 worth of soil, just that we can harvest a couple times a year. The idea then is that we can test the principles on a larger scale And then we'll have better information and it'll be a learning curve. It'll be a learning process. And so as we start taking people who have backyard gardens and helping them create backyard farms, then we start to really dial in urban agriculture. Yeah. Wow. And you're taking on the Phoenix metro area, 4.8 million people or something Mm -hmm. crazy like that. How does somebody in another city learn about this and integrate it, start playing with it. That's the hard part. So part of the other half of the grants, a little under half of the grant is we're actually going to start working on creating a manufactured system, something that, that we can build it as a, on a kind of a, in a factory and we can package it up. And let me throw an idea. I think you're going to this one, Greg. So there's a group out of New York called Ecovative. 
and they make mushroom packaging. So what they do is they make something that's a lot like, it has a lot of similar properties to styrofoam, but they grow it out of mushroom mycelium. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah, and there's a Dell has been using them for years. I think IKEA is using them as well. And what I would prefer... Hold on here. Let me just... Ecovative is the name of the company? Correct. And what they're doing is they're using spent mushroom stuff to make really cardboard, right? No, they're making what's really, it's really more like styrofoam. Like styrofoam. Interesting. It's a a replacement for styrofoam. And it's not actually spent mushroom spawn. What they do is they take a mold, they pack it with agricultural waste, chopped up corn husks or pecan shells or whatever is locally available. They grow the mushrooms into it. It takes about four days. uh, And then they put it in an autoclave. They kill the mushrooms at the right stage, Uh pull it out of the thing, and then they use that as packaging. And when you're done with the packaging, you can throw it in the backyard. You can throw it in the woods. It is 100% biodegradable. It just breaks down and turns into soil. Wow. Okay. That was a digression because I wanted to hear more about that. Carry on what you were going to say. Okay, so now let's say that we were going to ship you a garden kit. And let's say we made the packing materials out of that material. Uh-huh. And then we could impregnate that. We put a little bit of biochar in there. We put some azomite. We put these things that you need to do. So when you get your kit, you pull it apart, you build your garden, and then you take your packaging material and you put it back in your garden and it becomes your starter soil. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So Man, I mean, we're, we're, we're years away from doing that, but that is the goal. I love the way you think. <laughs> so the there's the obviously the manufactured system. Again, we're still a couple of years from doing that. I've taken a couple of stabs at writing a manual for how to do that. And uh-huh. the problem with a manual is... As I mentioned, there's 12 different things that go into this. And to be able to just understand, if you want to design your own system, there's a lot of pieces that you need to understand. When I first started writing the manual, I thought it was going to be about five pages. I could just cover everything really quick. And then I'd add pictures and get it up to probably closer to 10 pages. My current version is 18 pages long. I'm not sure I've covered everything and there's no pictures in it. There's a lot of detail. So plans are maybe a little bit more in the works. The other thing that we would like to eventually move towards doing is if we find people in other places who want to grow, who want to start creating a business model based around stuff like this, we want to create a professional network where they can come Mm. out here and we can train them and create a network around this because the more people we have experimenting, there's so many experiments that need to be done on this because everything's new. And so the more people we have out there building stuff, the more we can start really data collecting and different people are going to bring different skill sets to it. Right. Um, But, you know, we, it's one of those things where we know it works. We're just kind of working on optimizing. There's, I still think there's a lot of growth that we can do that'll really make it produce more. Nice. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that great data with us. So I'm going to shift on you. And as a returning guest, I'd like you to share a vivid childhood memory around food. I think the one that comes to mind is when I was younger than 10, we lived in central Illinois and my grandparents had a big garden. I very strongly imagine it was a victory garden. But it was a big one. They were very active at gardening. And my mom grew up with that. And so we lived in 
a little town called Danville, Illinois, and the soil was black and beautiful and rich. And my mom put in this big garden every year and just got, we got a ton of produce out of it. But one of the things that we would grow every year, there's a variety of corn that doesn't seem to be well known outside of Illinois. It's called a line eye extra sweet. And the corn, it's the sweetest sweet corn I think I've ever had. I've been to family reunions back in Illinois where there's a, a grill going with hot dogs and hamburgers and another one with a big pot of corn and nobody's eating the hot, the hot dogs and hamburgers. <laughs> oh, um, nice. That's how good it is. And I, I used to get in trouble as a little kid because I would sneak out into the corn rows and I would peel off ears of corn and eat them raw and then try and hide the cob. <laughs> <laughs> But it, they were so delicious, even before you cooked them. And that's one of the other things. The Lear Garden, because it has that rich organic soil that develops flavors. I grew mint for the first time this last spring. I've always avoided putting it in because I figured it would take over. And it's it was a chocolate mint variety. And it, you could just run your hands over it. It smelled like vapor rub. It was so strong. Yeah, Cilantro always gets super strong. Basil does too. We need flavor in our food. Corn grows in a Lear Garden too. I've grown it. There you go. All right. And what new piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think my advice always is go experiment, try things, learn. I noticed that a lot of people, when they take up gardening, they pop onto the garden websites and they say, okay, I've got a question. What's this? What's this? What's this? And they're going to hear what other people have learned, what other, sometimes what other people have tried, but you're going to learn more if you go try it. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ed. Thanks for having me. You bet. And how can our listeners get a hold of you and find out more? Our website is leargarden.com. That's L-E-H-R garden.com. And there's contact information on there. And we've, we were working on putting more up, but the city's keeping us pretty busy. So I'm still, it's still a little bit of a work in progress, but aren't they always there? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Lear Urban Farm. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free 
to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.